Welcome to the Learner.co show, hosted by Kevin Horick and his fellow Learner co-founders. Listen in as groundbreaking leaders discuss what they've learned, discover the books, podcasts, presentations, courses, research, articles, and lessons that shape their journey. To listen to past episodes and find links to all sources of learning mentioned, visit Learner.co. That's Learner with two L's, .co. Welcome back to the learner.co show. Today I'm excited. We have Mike Fitzsimmons. He's the co-founder and CEO of Crosscheck. He's got a really interesting kind of background in the recruitment space and what they're doing at Crosscheck. I'm curious to know what you guys think and, and what you're looking forward to in today's interview, uh, John and Greg. I'm really interested in the in the product that they're developing and the and I think they've identified a really interesting job to do that a lot of people are a lot of people in business have been looking for for a long time and that is a major pain point and that's recruitment and getting the right employees. Yeah, I think this is going to be pretty fascinating too just seeing what he's learned along the way and and how that informed why he created this company cuz just our own woes over the years and trying to recruit people. It's, it's a hard task and, and, you know, people are difficult at times even, and, and kind of, you know, hard to, it's hard to, hard to know what you're going to get. And uh, sometimes wonderful things happen, sometimes not so wonderful, but uh, his experiences around that and, and understanding people and, or, or not and how that informed what he's created is going to be really interesting to see. Welcome back to the Learner.co show. Today we have Mike Fitzsimmons. He's the co-founder and CEO of Crosscheck. Mike, welcome to the show. Awesome to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm really excited to have you on the show. We've talked before, and I think what you guys are doing at Crosscheck is really innovative and cool and very much needed in the space. But maybe before we get into that, let's get to know you a little bit better and start off with where you grew up. Yeah, I, I uh, not a one not a one town answer for me. I was the <laughs> son of immig- immigrant parents, and we, I was actually born in Nashville, Tennessee, and spent the most time in my early years in uh, outside of Boston, Mass, and then Richmond, Virginia. So East Coast, basically, uh, but a number of different stops. Very cool. What did you take in university, and why? I studied economics. Uh, I studied economics. I actually went to college to play sports, and I went to a liberal arts school. And it was the closest thing I could get to something that resembled a business major. So it was it was the best I could do based on the options that I had in front of me. Interesting. You've done a ton of stuff and worked for a bunch of different companies. Do you maybe want to give us a bit of background on your journey with some learnings along the way? Yeah, sure. I mean, it's it's been quite a quite a journey. Um, I I started my career actually in a in a large enterprise. It was a company called Circuit City, which at the time was the the dominant consumer electronics retailer in the U.S. A twelve billion dollar revenue company, and I was very fortunate in in that experience to be part of a new business unit. So I was on the front lines of launching new companies within Circuit City, and this was kind of right out of right out of college. So it was a very cool cool starting point. Uh, little, little known fact, but uh, CarMax, which is a very large, successful car retailer in the U.S., uh, was actually a, a Circuit City uh, company that, that, cool. that we started. Uh, but Circuit City is no longer, no, longer, <laughs> no longer in the world, but CarMax is still a dominant player. So it's an interesting learning there in terms of innovation. But, but for sure, that's where I started. And that's where I got a lot of the, the early lessons of incubating, of incubating startups within, within a big organization. And then I set out for Silicon Valley and sort of started my journey with true true startups, if you will. Um, so now we're dating. It's probably, uh, probably 20 years ago. What made you actually make the leap from corporate America into doing startups? I think part of it was the personal journey. You know, I was Circuit City was headquartered in Richmond, Virginia. I probably felt a little bit, although the opportunity seemed, seemed large, I, I knew there was a lot more out there. Uh, and then that coupled with um, actual professional opportunities. So I actually got a got a took took a job opportunity with an e-commerce startup out in San Francisco, um, and that was really the catalyst for the move. You didn't just jump into starting your own company. You went and worked at a startup to begin with, correct? Yeah, exactly. And it was it was interesting. It probably took me about three months to realize that that wonderful experience I got early in my career at a you know, Fortune 500 large company, uh, both just from a corporate protocol and process and 
how are things done uh, in a large organization um, was so so beneficial beneficial and valuable. It's probably three months in where I realized, gosh, all of that experience was great, and I, I can do this. You know, I'm built for this, and this is this is uh, I probably got my sea legs, got my confidence. Interesting. Did you try to bring some of your lessons that you learned in Circuit City into the startup to make their processes and businesses better? Well, it was it was also just knowledge of the business. It was a very Silicon Valley thing at the time where where people were starting companies in general categories that they thought were going to be successful but didn't necessarily have deep deep domain experience in those categories. So the company that I joined was actually a company called Warranty Now, and Warranty Now was trying to enable the sale of online extended service plans, um, sort of as attachments to buying consumer electronics products. And the reason that I was uniquely qualified to to come in and, and run product for this company is is because that was the largest profit driver at Circuit City. Uh, believe it or not, Circuit City was a 12 billion revenue company, but 650 million of it was an extended warranty sales, and all of the all of the profit in the business came from those extended warranties. You know, there was no margin in selling DVD players. It was all about selling the extended warranty. Full stop, non-negotiable. The company would not have been profitable without it. And so uh-huh. it was for sure. I had I had leverage and, and experience to bring to the table on, on just that experience and the ability to kind of share my expertise of knowing how it actually worked within the you know at that time the largest most successful player in the space. Uh, so that was beneficial. Uh, but I'm not sure that the, there was business lessons. I think a lot of the startup stuff you you do have to kind of learn on the fly, right? You have to learn how to do a hundred different jobs. And you have to learn how to how to how to kind of be resourceful in a different way than you do in a larger enterprise. So it's, it's probably a combination of of two. Sure. Do you maybe want to talk about some of the skills that you've learned the hard way along the way as you've been building your own companies? Well, for sure. Fundraising is one. You know, I think that was I remember the first VC meeting that once I started at this company warranty now. And I remember it like it was yesterday. I didn't even know what a VC was. Uh, I probably couldn't have spelled couldn't have spelled VC at the time. (laughs) But I remember they brought me to the meeting to be the subject matter expert. And I remember that like like figuring out that motion. It's certainly something that you, you you learn through experience, right? And those of us that have started companies and kind of raised capital, we probably all remember the first meeting we had and the second meeting we had and the tenth meeting we had until we kind of figured out, you know, how to get the pitch right, how to make sure we're focusing on the right things, and how we understand what the the venture investor is really looking for. Um, and that's very different um, than a lot of the motions that we kind of take to our everyday life, right? In our everyday life, where we're trying to drive incremental improvement on things. Um, you know that you don't want to tell an incremental story to any venture investor, sure. right? You want to you want to tell a story about category creation and big markets and things of that nature. So that for sure took took time and took to grind and took a lot of nose along the way before I started to figure out those motions. Um, but that 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 I would I would definitely highlight as something that you know I don't think anybody gets that right on on their first at bat. You were learning how to pitch and talk to investors. And I've heard different sides of, of people trying to pitch to their ideal VCs, maybe at the beginning, or they leave them to the end. What do you think, and what are your thoughts around actually curating your list of pit, people to pitch to? Yeah, and I, I think the, the, the phase one in your journey of, of capital raising um, is different than sort of phase three or four. And I, I think I'm, okay. I'm in kind of the phase three or four now where I have a reputation. I know people in the category and I, I it's different where you can afford to be a little bit more selective and, and more focused and more intentional in terms of um, the investors that you want to work with. I okay. think that you have to earn that. I think you have to earn that right uh, a bit. And I know it's changing. and I know we're getting, there's so many funds now and so much access to capital and and more entrepreneurs are getting funded earlier in their in their company's journeys. But I would say in my early in my earlier days, um, man, I would you just take any meeting you can get, right? Sure. It's like sure. it's nice to be intentional. It's nice to be the perfect Y combinator. Goes to you know Sequoia does your A or whatever it is. But the reality is that's not right. That that that's not that that's not every company. And so I was I was more in the zone of having to do every one of those you know angel pitch meetings or just networking the hell out of it and just any way I could get an at bat with a potential investor, I would I would take. And and the irony of all of that, though, it's a funny story I, I will never forget. Uh, two companies ago for me, um, we had we had we had had a pretty successful campaign that took place. It was in the e-commerce space, and we got into the Wall Street Journal, and they did a whole piece on us. 
And a VC reached out to me and I'd never heard of the fund. And I said, yeah, I'll take the meeting. But I was kind of, I was kind of just downtrodden at the time. And I didn't, had never heard of the fund. I'd never heard of the guy. And I was sort of just, just not very optimistic about it. And he came to meet with me. And I remember um, when he, when he reached back out and said he wanted to lead our series A, he said, it's because you acted like you didn't want me. It's like you were so dismissive. <laughs> and I didn't even know that that was happening, right? I just was having a day. We all have days, right? And I was having a bad day and it came through, but it weirdly, it weirdly helped. So um, the other investor that came in that round, ironically, I was, we started this business and I was uh, on Kearney Street in San Francisco and we took the full fourth floor of this building and there was four companies in it. And I remember I was there late one night, uh, I was not that late, it was seven o'clock and and a guy comes up the elevator and he's, he was looking for someone else who wasn't there. So it was the CEO of another startup that was sharing the space with me. And this guy had stuck on a plane. His plane was late coming in from, from LA. And so I said, this gentleman's name was Chris Hadfield. And I said, hey, Chris, well, well, what do you do? And he's like, I'm a venture investor. I said, well, do you want to go grab dinner? So the, he and I went and grabbed dinner. So he wasn't even coming to see me. He was coming to see this other guy. And he ended up being the co-investor in our series A. So wow. anyway, not always you never know, line. right? Right. <laughs> you just never yeah. know. Just want to step back for a second. What actually made you take the leap and do your own startup? Yeah. I mean, I think it 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 starts with an idea for sure. Right. I, I definitely yeah. was not an entrepreneur that just said, Hey, I want to start something. What am I gonna start? That was okay. that was and was and never has been my, my approach. Um my approach has definitely been uh more more um a little more purpose driven around a specific idea that, that I've identified. And so um, that's the first piece is, is just identifying what I think is a big idea. And then the, the second piece is I just always felt like I could do it. You know, there is a, there's a part of confidence. And I think if you're, if you're confident enough and you, you're, you understand the space enough and can gather the resources to kind of get a product to market, you know, you, you've got a shot. So that idea plus the confidence in yourself, uh, to go make it happen. I think you, you, you sort of have to have those two things in order to, to have a shot. Sure. I'm curious then what made you come up with the idea for Crosscheck and what exactly is it? Yeah. And this was a super, super personal one. And I, and I'll, and I'll just, to just, to again, show you how the arc of, of things isn't always a straight line. So my co-founder and I, Pete Gettner and Pete, has been a very successful entrepreneur and investor uh, during his career. Pete took his first company that he started public on NASDAQ out of wow. business school, which was an e-learning SaaS company. Pete was actually the VC at Worldview Ventures who read the Wall Street Journal article and invested in my company. So just wow. to show you how full circle this, this stuff goes. But Pete That's and amazing. I worked together. It's pretty amazing. But Pete and I worked together for about a decade on that business. And... Um, you know, we realized during that journey, um, sort of concurrently realized um, some of the challenges that come along with trying to hire and make good hiring decisions. And so after we sold that business, he and I got together. It was about two years later. I was running another company at the time, and, and Pete approached me to get a coffee. So let's go grab a coffee and catch up. We hadn't talked in a while. And he said, let's go start a seed fund. Let's go, you know, partner together and go start a, a small, you know, $25, $50 million fund and look at early stage investments. And I said, you know what, Pete, we still have to solve this thing, this bad hire thing. Like I said, then we went back and both reminisced about the challenges associated with making great hiring decisions. And so that was the, the, when the, the fire started burning again. And I went, went to work and started putting together a more meaningful business plan, really trying to solve the problem of helping the company make better hires, full stop. Uh, he and I then, I, yeah, he started getting more fired up about it. And before you knew it, <laughs> We were co-founding Crosscheck, and after the races, after the races, we went. So again, I'll reiterate the non the non-linear approach to many of these things. Uh, but now that is what Crosscheck is doing. Uh, if you look at hiring data, um, it's it's rough. It's a it's an industry uh, that hits all of our companies, or uh, and still isn't isn't great. Forty five percent of new hires don't make it eighteen months in their new job. And despite all of the tools that we have and all of the things that we're trying to do, we're still not getting it right. And so that's what Crosscheck is, is trying to do is bring more data to the hiring process, uh, help give companies and talent access to more tools to ensure that, you know, they are well matched and uh, set them up for long-term success. So that, that's, that's at, a, at a highest level what we are doing. And we're off to a pretty good start. We're, we're excited about where things are. 
Obviously, it's a bit of a mission-driven approach to building and starting a company. How are you guys solving that problem? Because it's pretty challenging. It's really challenging. And I think, I think just to, to further emphasize the, the, the reason we think it's such a big idea and a big opportunity um, is it, just how massive it, it is. And we know the problems as companies when we make poor hiring decisions. We know how they impact culture. We know how much it impacts productivity. We know how expensive it is to find a replacement and train that replacement. But we also think about the impact on talent and just how awful it is for people when they take the wrong job. So like we're all aware this is a $100 billion plus problem. And so if you could make a 1% incremental impact on that big problem, you can have a meaningful a meaningful impact on the world. So that, that part is, is really clear. And the way we do that is through through data. I mean, what we have learned is that this industry has been flying blind for way too long. And when I say flying blind, they just haven't been equipped. Talent leaders haven't been equipped with the right tools to help them actually have the normal data you would have in any other business function to measure their success or failure. So the first thing that Crosscheck does is we come in and we, we help companies get organized around a quality of hire uh, metrics. So how do you actually understand and analyze the quality of your hiring decisions to ultimately help you become better hirers? And that's, that includes two things. We, we have our, we call it the talent intelligence cloud. We connect your pre-hire data with your post-hire business outcome data in the cloud and connect that in a way that can be analyzed to help you understand what are predictors of success in your company uh, and ultimately translate those into how you make hiring decisions. Because you've got to figure out where you are. You've got to get your benchmarks established. You've got to understand uh, for your organization, right, the, 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 those types of data points. And then we right. do all kinds of cool things to help you optimize those decisions. But it's all based in data, data, data. And it's all based in connecting the pre-hire uh, candidate uh, intelligence with post-hire business outcomes. That's, that's what it ultimately comes down to. Okay. Obviously, as I hire people and co- that come and go through my company, the data gets better, and then it can help me in the long term. Or how does that kind of work using CrossCheck on an ongoing basis? Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's the idea. And, and I, let me give you a couple of radical insights and some real data sure. from real customers, and you can kind of put it into context. And and some of this might surprise you, and some of it not, might might not surprise you. But I'll, but I'll give you one specific, uh, unique instance. Uh, we have a large enterprise customer, twenty thousand employees. They hire about five thousand people a year, and and we just kind of completed the phase one of their benchmarking for their quality of hire uh, analytics. And one of the things that we were able to determine is that they only had a nine percent correlation to their interview scores to ultimately the quality of the hire. So take a second on that. You know, they, we all we all do interviews, and then we score those interviews. Those go into an applicant tracking system, and that's ultimately part of how we we have interview teams and we make hiring decisions. Only a nine percent correlation to how they scored their interviews and how good that person turned out to be. Wow! Right. So yeah. Then you're saying to yourself, okay, what do I do with that data? Well, there's a couple of things you do. You can then go a layer deeper and look at who was on those interview teams. Are there certain people that tend to be really good predictors of talent? And are those that maybe aren't as good that we need to develop more? Uh, but certainly those great predictors of talent, I want to put them on more interview panels, right? Sure. Um, and that, that sort of thing. But it also impacts how do we make decisions. So if we start to process that data, we're like, it's only 9% correlative. Uh, then the conversation gets pretty interesting that, hey, we should be looking at other things. We shouldn't be. We know that some people interview well and some people just don't interview as well. But historically, right. it has been one of the primary tools we make de- we use to make decisions. And now we've proven through data that for this particular organization, it's just simply not effective. So we got to think about other ways that we can we can make these decisions. So that's just a good example. I think it shows how how much bias there is in our processes too. And there's all these challenges that we just believe until you get data into the system, um, you're just not going to be fully equipped to make great decisions. So you have this candidate assessment and reference check. Do you want to talk about that? Because I think that's actually a really interesting and fascinating part of your business. Yeah, I love it. That, that Once you kind of have the data, then the question is, how do I optimize? And one of the ways that, that we think you can get better, we've, we've rolled out a product called our Crosscheck 360. And our Crosscheck 360 is really a modernized version of a reference checking tool. Uh, what we do with the Crosscheck 360 is we do what we call a self or have candidates do what we call a self-reference which is an eight-minute um, online survey, if you will, where you're answering questions of how you view yourself 
upon different dimensions, interpersonal dimensions, skills dimensions, things of that nature. And then we go out and combine that with feedback from people you have worked with in the past, peers, managers, you know, coworkers, mentors, whatever it is, to really give this 360 view on who you are and what it's like to work with you and what are the things that you're great at and what are the things that you're maybe not as great at, but hey, we as a hiring company could develop you to be great at. And it really, we, we call this human intelligence and it's this idea of, all right, we could all create great resumes and, but maybe we didn't go to Harvard and maybe we didn't work at Google, but those who have worked with us know that we are absolute rock stars. And so how do we get that data into the hiring decision, right? And how do we get that data into the process? And that's what the 360 is. It's kind of bringing that layer of human intelligence, real, real. What is it like, you know, what is Mike like to work with? Um, you know, EQ kind of stuff and getting that into the, into the flow so we can use that as part of our calculus. That's the idea. So once I'm in the system as an employee, the company monitors how long I stay, how well I'm doing and that kind of thing. But what happens when I choose to leave the company? Do I still have a profile on CrossCheck that I can leverage for my next gig or, or what types of people I hire bef- before I'm starting my own company or how does that work? Yeah, for sure. So there's a we, we have a concept called the locker. So every candidate that works with CrossCheck, the, the talent themselves, they create a CrossCheck locker. That, okay. that locker is fully portable. So you can take that with you from one opportunity to another. It's especially good for like gig, gig workers who are just right. by the nature of their, their engagements or working 90 days at a pop or whatever it is. Um, we're also looking to expand that locker. You know, we have a view that things like your performance reviews and things of that nature that historically, you know, you leave a company and go to the next. Those don't necessarily go with you unless you find a way to bundle them together. And it's kind of a broken process. So we're doing some cool things and, and on our roadmap with that locker where we think there's an opportunity to have kind of a, a verified version of your LinkedIn that has your, your real stuff, if you will. Sure. Um, that, that you can travel with you and take with you from opportunity to opportunity. So portability, we think, is really, really important. I'm, I'm curious to know what other advice or findings have you learned along the way hiring people? Because you mentioned a little while ago, a lot of startups fail just because they don't hire the right people. Yeah, it's, it's, we've been doing a ton of hard work, too, around evolving our CrossCheck 360 product so it does a better job of getting even more focused on specific cultural company stage dimensions. Um, and that's an important thing. I mean, we, we know in our own hiring, right, there's a, in a company of up to 100 employees, there's a certain mindset and a certain type of person who's going to do better. Uh, and that person might not do as well as at a company of 100,000 employees, right? That's just the, just the reality of it. So then that's not always the case, but for certain cultures it, or company cultures, it for sure is the case. So I think, I think you got to just get really honest about what, it, what, what drives and creates success at your organization. You know, I think that is part that companies probably aren't as self-aware as we like to think we are. You know, we, we like to think of ourselves upon certain dimensions, but until you start looking at the data, do you really understand what are the things that are going to be predictive of success at your organization? So I think that's, it's just really important. I think to the comp- as company leaders ourselves, we just have to be in touch with that, like really authentically in touch. Um, not what we kind of wrote down on our, you know, mission and value statement, but really, really in terms of what, what, what is, um, you know, a predictor of success for our organizations. And then we got to manage that. Interesting. No, that makes a lot of sense. So I'm, I'm curious then if I apply at a company and it looks like I'm an okay candidate, for example, could you, or are you currently doing where you'd maybe recommend me to another company that I would be a better fit at or, or something like that? Yeah, no, and we're doing some cool things. I mean, we're, we're, we, we recently rolled out a product called Crosscheck Recruit and the phase one of Crosscheck Recruit was actually um, creating job opportunities for those in your network. So, so you as a candidate are applying for a job at uh, one of our companies, and you have given as part of your references six of your former coworkers and managers. At okay. the end of that process, we, we do make an invitation to those folks to say, hey, are you also interested in a job at XYZ company? Gotcha. And they opt in and say, yes, I am. So we have this really cool thing developing. It's kind of like a viral uh, referral network, but it's done pre-hire, not post-hire. Like we've all seen gotcha. employee referral networks forever. 
Um, right. So we are creating these talent pools and companies are jumping on them and they're making great high quality hires out of them. And there's a, you know, there's an idea here that if you're great quality and we're about to hire you, it's, it's, you know, there's a fairly reasonable likelihood that the people that are your references are also going to be high quality. So we are doing some cool things to kind of create talent pools for our companies as well and, sure. and open up job opportunities for folks that are, that are looking for them. Sure. How does a person figure out what type of employee they are? So it's just as many different data signals as we can get on both sides, both pre-hire and post-hire is what we're trying to get. So on the pre-hire side, I mean, as I mentioned already, we're getting stuff like, you know, who was your interviewer? Who was your recruiter? What was the source of your hire? And everything else. We're getting, you know, where did you go to school? What were your skills? You can just imagine what that ontology looks like kind of pre-hire in terms of all that different data. Obviously, your cross-check 360, what are your interpersonal skills like? What are your, you know, what do what you like to work with? What's your personality traits? All that stuff. So we're getting all of that into the cloud. But then the post-hire side is where I think there's, man, a tremendous amount of innovation to be done. So it's not just this straight line as how long did you last and what kind of performer were you? Those right. are sort of the traditional things that we would look at. But we want to look at things like how engaged are you? Are you a culture ad? So we're getting data now on the engagement side. It could be, Hey, after you joined, how many Slack communities did you did you did you engage in? Um, do you show up on time for our all hands? Do you stay for the whole time on our all hands? Right? These might seem like like crazy things, but this data is now accessible, right? And it wasn't accessible in the past. And so our ability to judge or, or to, to to draw conclusions around things like engagement in addition to performance and in addition to tenure um, is also a pretty pretty cool reality of where we are right now. Uh, and that's just, we're just getting started on that. I mean, we're, 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 you know, working on the ability to suck in data around, think about in Salesforce, we can tell how long did it take you to achieve quota, right? How long did it take right. you to get your first deal done as a seller? And you think about the fail rate with sales hires, man, that is off the charts. So if we can kind of help get more predictive on who's going to, you know, close, you know, close deals more quickly, get up to being a revenue producer more rapidly and, and that sort of thing, we can have a profound impact. Um, so there's just so many cool things happening on that side in terms of getting that post-hire data uh, into the system. And that's just a long-winded answer to your question. But if you if you kind of think about how all those pieces ultimately connect, um, and if we, we get it right, then we can start to draw those inferences and those, those correlations for our companies to help them understand who's going to ultimately be a great producer and the, the star that they're looking for. Interesting. Obviously, you could create a rock star type profile that as I'm getting new candidates to maybe recognize this person as a potential rock star and if they'll fit into your organization. Is that fair to say? Yeah, exactly. And, and even, I mean, I'll tell you some other cool extensions that we've been sure. working on. We have a new, a new product that we're rolling out, which we call early star detection. So one of the things that we have learned is that in this new world order with remote hiring, uh, we're making these great hires of people that we think are stars, but we're kind of losing touch with them just because of the remote nature of work. And so lots of companies are seeing really high regrettable attrition earlier than they would have typically, like quick quits in you know, less than 90 days. This person that we hired that we thought was awesome is gone. And so that's a function of there being so much job opportunity, but that's also a function of us as company leaders not being on top of it. So we've rolled out this, um, this tool that, that does early star detection that is basically because we're getting this quick post-hire data on how they're performing, we can just identify to the to the manager and say, hey, hey, Mike's Mike's doing great. You know, this is day 31, but all the signal is that he's performing well, he's highly engaged. Let's make absolutely certain that you're on top of it, right? That you're from an right. L and D, even from a comp perspective, that you're you're making sure he's psyched and fired up. So we're we are we are we do see some really cool opportunities there to help as well, just in detecting talent, detecting stars after we've hired them. And making certain that we're doing everything in our power to retain them, because this this job market is crazy, as we all know. And you can kind of step out your door and find a new opportunity without without too much work. I'm assuming that you've seen companies that are allowing their employees the most flexibility, whether that's they want to work on in an office full time, work from home, or a bit of both, or maybe some other perks that they can kind of have those demands these days. And if employers don't really allow that to happen, they might not get as good of talent. Or, or what are your thoughts around that? Yeah, I, I, I think it's 
I think it's increasingly complex in terms of the balance and the relationship between companies and talent. And I think we all just have to do challenge ourselves to do the best job of making sure they're well matched, right? Day one before we even before we even make the hiring decision. And then once we've made the hiring decision and we, we believe they're well matched, it's really it's kind of our moral obligation to make sure that we're creating an environment that works for both sides. And so I, I do think the stakes are just higher, right? It's just right. easier for talent to move. Mobility is on the rise and then it and it should pressure all of us um, to do better and to make sure that we're intentional in terms of how we're creating development plans uh, for our talent, right? That we're intentional about how we're onboarding them and getting to know them. Uh, CrossCheck right. has another product called CrossCheck Connect. Okay. CrossCheck Connect is kind of a human onboarding product um, where that we created in order to, um, especially in a remote world, help get to know our talent quicker. So we've already got the CrossCheck 360. Once you've accepted the job, we have another survey we can activate that that will go out to the candidate and say, hey, Mike, before you start, we want to get to know you a little bit better. And so it's asking questions like everything from how do you like to communicate? Are you a morning person? How do you like to get feedback? How do I earn a gold star with you? What kind of food do you like? What kind of movies do you like? Whatever it is. And we have this whole idea that if we can make this a much more human process on the onboarding, uh, especially, again, in a remote environment and get to know you quicker, the things that maybe we used to talk about at the water cooler or when we'd go grab lunch together because I saw you in the hallway, like all that kind of stuff that's now gone. Yeah. Uh, we think we can also help on that front, too, just to make that initial that initial transition that much smoother. No, that's really cool. I'm curious because you've launched a bunch of companies from the ground up and you're building companies and you guys just raised $30 million that, and you've done a bunch of things that I think a lot of people are trying to do with their startup. What advice do you give people when they're in those early days and they're grinding before they maybe start to see their first customers or when they actually start to grow and and raise some money? Yeah, I, I think that I, I think it is important before you start or when you start. That there's there's sort of two things that I think are critical that to check the box on, and they're they're sort of team and Sam. And I'm 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 a broken record on this, but I, I think is as, as uh, if you've got the right team and you've got a large enough team, uh, then it's worth fighting for, right? So before you start the fight, let's make sure that a you're qualified to be in the fight, and b it's a big enough fight worth winning. Right. So like, like yeah. so that, 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 those are, those are pretty important, I think, table stakes again, uh, before you get going. And then I think once you get going with, with that at your back, and if you're right, um, if you're right that it's a big enough TAM, then, then it, it just is about perseverance. You know, I told those, that story earlier about the Series A in my first company. None of that makes sense. None of that's a straight line. Right. Sure, None of yep. that probably it's not again, I, I, it's not your I, I, I was selected for Y Combinator, graduated and Sequoia led my A. Right. That's not that wasn't that, that's not necessarily always always the path, although that's a wonderful path for sure. So I think that perseverance piece is just it's just absolute. And if you're you, you just have to be tough, you have to grind, um, you know, you, you have to you, you just have to do those things. I, I, I think about the um, the Gartner hype hype cycle. Okay. Right. And I always kind of, I always kind of, I always kind of, um, kind of look back and I have it on my wall in my office. Right. Just to always think back to just those sort of, those, those sort of key moments, um, in your, and, and it's built more around emerging technologies and how, how that works. But I also think it's a really good representation in terms of the human emotion on your journey where you get all excited and we're all fired up and we're going to launch our company and then it gets really, 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 really hard. Right. Yep. And then it's just sort of chip, 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 chip back up the train. It's almost like a, that, that roller coaster analogy, right? It's just, just, that's just the reality of what it's going to be. And it's going to be like that for a fairly long time. So I think that's just an important thing of being extraordinarily self-aware. You know, it's going to take seven to eight years for your company to ever, you know, to create liquidity in all likelihood, right. If that's what you're after. And just be be extraordinarily aware that the journey is going to be long. Uh, but back to that, if you've got the team and you've got a TAM that's big enough, it's worth doing. And if it's worth doing, then you just have to persevere, right? And just grind your grind your way through. Are there any books or podcasts or courses or something that you'd recommend to people that have guided your journey along the way? 
You know, it's like, and I'm a part of that is that I, I'm just a big reader uh, in term or learner, I should say better. I'm not a great reader, but I, I do my best. But I, in terms of books, I always, that Guy Kawasaki book, Art of the Start, was one that mm-hmm. for me early on was just like, okay, that's a good crash course. Um, there's another good one that was a Maynard Webb book who was a, a pretty well-known VC called Dear Founder that I thought was pretty good. Um, and then, then more tactically, and this was, you know, this was my first pure SaaS company that I started. And there was a book uh, by Bruce Cleveland called Traversing the Traction Gap that was literally like a how-to play-by-play on B2B SaaS. And I, I carry that thing around like a Bible, literally. And I would have all the pages marked. It looked like, you know, it looked like, um, you know, like a, a 10-year-old kid with his favorite, his favorite, you know, uh, comic book kind of thing. But I would just take it with me everywhere. And that was even at my current stage. So there are resources out there. There's so many of them. I think you can never go wrong. Uh, those are some that I, that I like. I think in terms of podcasts, um, I've recently, and I don't know how it took me so long to get on this, but I recently have been kind of locked in on Reed Hoffman's Masters of Scale podcast. Sure. I just dig it, and it's just really a good one. But then I also, Glenn Solomon is one of my VCs, has a good one, a smaller one, Founder of Real Talk. And I think it's actually a worthwhile one I'd recommend to folks. It kind of covers the gamut of stage uh, and company type, but Glenn's really good and, and really good at, at those things. So those are some that I that I lean on, but you know, it's a uh, Similarly, we're, we're in such a sharing economy now that <laughs> I get stuff coming in all the time that I love, you know, I'm sure you do too. Sure. Yeah. Uh, it's a long, long, long list. Is there anything that you've learned outside of business that you found helpful in your current ventures or in the past? You know, I, there's one, one thing for sure. I think and my co-founder Pete is, is great with this, but I do think just generally optimism is an extraordinarily important trait if you're doing this. You know, it's like, it's like you really just, you just, if you're, you know, there's, fear is a good thing and we're all fearful and you can't be in this game unless you're, you're, you're fearful, but I think you have to be also optimistic and I think you have to find that in you and make sure you're channeling that the right way, just like in all of our normal, you know, our daily lives, right? I, I do think it's an important thing to remember too, and to keep it all into perspective um, and, and sort of getting that balance and just, you know, we're doing this hopefully for the right reasons and, and, and just, just maintaining that level of optimism. So for me, uh, that's certainly something in terms of my personal life that I, that, that sort of plays on both sides. And then the other one is just how you treat people. You know, it's just, again, it's like your normal, how do you treat people in a restaurant? How do you treat people at home? How do you treat your, those you care about? How do you treat those you don't even know well? Right. And I think you gotta, you gotta do all that stuff right. And then that, that obviously naturally flows into how you treat the people you work with and your customers and your partners and your investors. So, I think be optimistic, treat people great, you know, and persevere. Those are the three for me. Interesting. You keep talking about perseverance, and it's come up a few times in the conversation. How have you gotten through the low points and pushed through and continue going? Because it can be very easy to quit, especially when it's, you know, your 100th low point of the year. Yeah, it's, um, you know, it's funny. There, there are... I think earlier in my career, um, what's the book? Is it too big to fail? I think, or whatever that is. I think, I think I, I, it's funny. I think earlier in my career, I was too dumb to fail. Like I literally just didn't know any different, right? I just didn't see any other alternative, but to keep fighting through. And it was easier because I had more energy and I was, you know, I just, it was just natural to me just to fight through. And, and frankly, I, I probably wasn't as good with early signal detection on things that aren't working. I think my mantra has changed a little bit now where I'd rather fail fast right then fight through things that maybe aren't and, and that's that's part i'm getting i'm getting better at uh for sure is failing fast whether that's a feature whether that's a vertical we're going after whatever that is i think that's a right. that's a good learning um but i other i also think you know at some level um uh, when, when we were going into the pandemic i laughed to myself and i said to one of our investors i was like we're, we're too small to fail i was like i'm so glad we're not in a position where we're you know 500 people doing 100 million and revenue, but maybe losing, you know, burning 20 million a year. And we've got 10 million on our balance sheet, which maybe would have been financeable pre-pandemic, but now it's very challenging because we were nimble enough to be able to move, right. And react quickly. And so I I do think that there's also just that, that um, situational awareness and it, and and just being, you know, just being very, very, very disciplined and and we're getting better. I'm, I'm getting better at that. And that's, that's for sure. Helping, um, helping to kind of fight the fight is doing it in a more calculated fashion. And, and, you know, it's, it's, um, 
uh, just kind of be more, more disciplined and more rigid in that approach. How have you known when to pivot or fail fast? Because I think that can be really hard sometimes, especially if it's your first startup and you're grinding. You don't know how things are going to go. Are there any signs or anything or any examples you could give us of things to maybe look out for? Yeah, it's, it's a, um, I mean, look, I know it's an old cliche, but this idea of matching mission with metrics, right? And everything that we do. And I think you're never too early to start at least having some directional data, right? To pay attention to and to focus on. And so, and if you do that right from the jump and we are, we are crazy about it here at Crosscheck. Like we have, we are, we track it all um, because we're all in signal detection. And I think it's a, it's, it's early signal detection. And so make sure that what you're doing, you understand what output you're trying to achieve and make sure you're measuring it and, and, you know, and, and then looking at that signal and interpreting that signal. So I think that's, that's for me, how I, how I have to do it. You have to give it enough time to breathe. You have to kind of be smart enough to not run away too quickly, but you also have to make sure you're being honest with yourself about what you're seeing. Right. And so we've already, you know, we've experienced that in, in, in crosscheck, you know, we had, I'll, I'll give you an example of this. We had a, when we first came out, one of the big things that VCs wanted us to do was really nail this concept of back channeling, you know, doing like secondary references on people. And we built out a pretty elaborate <laughs> plan and, and our version one product that was like building reference graphs on you and going out and scraping all this stuff. And we could find your, your brother's sister's mother's dog. Right. And if that dog knew something about you, we could get that feedback. And we quickly realized that although people like to talk about it, no one was using it at all. Right. And so that was, we could have doubled down there because it's a, it's a fun one to talk about for sure. And people intellectually like the concept of it, but users just weren't touching it. So we were able to get away from that quickly. Uh, so anyway, there, just, just those things of just being, just being aware of them. And, and regardless of how excited you are about the feature, about the module, it's, it's just, just be aware, pay attention to that signal data, pay attention to it, honor it, right. Treat it like gold. Um, and then, then move quickly to react. Interesting. That's the one thing I always found interesting about startups is how even in a year or two, how different your company is from your original vision. And you've been at Crosscheck for a number of years now. How has it kind of evolved other than the example that you just gave? Yeah, and I, and I love, I mean, one of our investors is Slack, right? If you look at yeah, Slack story. Cool. Right. You know, they, they started as, you know, making video games. Right. And then before yeah. you know it, they found that they had this unbelievable communication <laughs> app that they had created for their internal use. And now Slack is born. So they're, they're you were, we're not anywhere near in terms of that that level of pivot, if you will. Um, but I think for sure what we have learned is that the the closed loop side of this equation is wide open to this idea of, of connecting the post hire outcomes, right. With all the pre hire intelligence is really what this industry is going to take. We, we, we always kind of knew that coming in. Uh, but we probably didn't realize just how important that ultimately was going to, was going to be. So our doubling down on, on, on our new hire analytics and those modules is definitely um, taking a disproportionate amount of our resources than what we had initially anticipated. So that was, that was a, uh, that's definitely a part of the, the, the evolution of our platform is just more into the data, more into the analytics. Sure. No, that, that's actually really interesting. And it's cool that somebody like yourself that's been down this road a few times, been through the startups uh, and been very successful in the past is still open and willing and to talk about pivoting still. Right. I, I always find that like that to me was one of the most eye opening things that I probably learned in my early thirties that I didn't, it didn't ever dawn on me. It's like, look, people that have been successful still fail. They still pivot. They still don't get it right out of the gate. And I don't know if you ever do like, and obviously you agree with that. Yeah. Cause you don't control, you know, a lot of stuff happens. I mean, I'd say in our world, the competitive landscape changes, right? Behavior changes. Sure. Look at the, look at, look at COVID, look at how it just changed. You know, so you just stuff changes and that's okay. Right. I think back to that team and Sam, as long as you're, rooted from an addressable market in something that's big enough and that, you know, it's kind of in motion, right. Um, yeah. And, and you're nimble enough and can react quickly enough. You're, you're going to put yourself in a good spot. Um, I think it's, I think it's when you, when you aren't able to react that quickly and when you just, when you chose a TAM that's too small, that's when you really get yourself into trouble, right? It's like you have a niche product in a small market and it just changed on you too quickly and you couldn't keep up. 
right? Then you're kind of dead in the water and, and you're, you're in trouble. Um, but if you're in a big enough market and you're able to react quickly and paying enough attention to the signals, you know, you should be able to figure it out. No, I think that's really good advice. So you decided to build CrossCheck because you've worked at companies and realized that there was a need in the recruitment space. So you actually came up, thought of a problem, came up with a solution and decided to actually go for it. But what do you, advice do you give to people that are looking to do the same thing? How do they figure out an idea? How do they decide that they should be the one to solve that? Because it's sometimes, you know, it dawns on you that this is a real problem. Maybe I should solve that. Should I let somebody else solve that? How do you kind of give advice to people to come up with their own ideas or how to come up with a startup idea? Yeah, I think it's that it's that you know I, I go back to that um, that Gartner um, curve. I just think it's so interesting, but it's like on your on your evolution of your idea. You, yeah, you start by you're like, okay, is this, I think this is a problem because I experienced it, right, or something yeah. like some version of that, right, where you first sort of identify the opportunity, and then you start poking around, and you're like, is this really a problem? How big is this problem? And you can kind of do your public research, and you can kind of build your your top down or bottoms up market. <laughs> size opportunity. Okay, it feels like a pretty big problem. And then you go start talking to people, right? The normal thing. I go find somebody qualified to give me a read on whether this is really a problem or not. And the more of those you do, just in my experience, you're like, okay, this is a problem, right? So you've kind of done that self-evaluation on the addressable market. And then you've got this evaluation on how competitive is it and how big a problem is it and talking to some potential buyers, are they going to validate that this is an opportunity? I think it's, it's, it's some version of that, right. For you to get to that place of the green light, you know, sure. I think that's, that's, that's just, that's just a, that's sort of always been at least my, my, my approach. Um, and, you know, I would, I would say one caveat though, if, if you're doing something that's very, it's very kind of blue ocean, you know, the red ocean, blue ocean analogy, and you're really creating a new market that people aren't even thinking about yet the latter part of the validation, you might have to just have the conviction yourself to go figure that out. Like if you can validate that the TAM is there and all that good stuff, but you might not get conviction from potential buyers because they can't even, they can't even register whether or not, you know, they need you or not yet. So that, that part is just all personal conviction. I think some of those, you know, I don't know that Elon would tell you that he went and talked to anybody before he decided to go to Mars. Right. Sure. Yeah, fair, <laughs> he just, fair, he yeah. just said, I'm going to Mars. Right. So no fair. certainly those on those entrepreneurs too that, you know, they're, they're in a different league than I, uh, but there's certainly those, those entrepreneurs that sort of, are, they just go and they just decide to go and go. So I'm a little bit more, I'm a little bit more calculated in my, in my approach, but. Sure. So do you think people should just dive fully in and quit their job or do it as a side hustle or what are your thoughts around that? Yeah. I mean, the cool thing about the world we're in now, there's a lot of gig, you know, way you know, opportunity to earn a living while you're incubating your company. Right. So that's cool. Like you can make money. That's always kind of been my thing, especially earlier in my career. I just would pick up a consulting gig of some sort or something that I could do to, to pay the bills. I, I do caution people. If, if you're, if you're going to start it while you're still working a full-time job, just do it the right way. Make sure you're doing the right disclosures. Don't expose yourself to any risk as it relates to, you know, inventions agreements and things like that. Just do do it the right way. If you're right. starting while you're still fully employed. Right. Um, but if you're going to, if you're going to jump off the bridge, make sure you got your back covered a little bit and you got a parachute. And I think just picking up part-time consulting options, what I always did. Right. And it was, it was actually, uh, always a good a good formula for, for me, um, but the uh, but look it's it's it is a lot easier to get a company off the ground now than it has ever been. I think we talked about this the last time we connected. It's like you sure. can, man, for you don't you know, it's not you don't even need a million. You know, it used to be a million bucks just to get off the ground. Yeah, I mean, you give it. You, know, you I think you said for less than fifty grand or something, you got your your last one off. And I think that's the reality. Like you can get rolling here without a major capital requirement as long as you got the team. You know, and you got a couple couple folks you can rely on that can help you, you know, build that initial product and get rolling. So go do it because it's it's doable. No, I think that's really good advice. But sadly, we're out of time. So how about we close with mentioning where people can get more information about yourself, CrossCheck, and any other links you want to mention? Yeah, awesome. So again, thank you so much for hosting us, uh, CrossCheck. You can find us uh, on the web at www.crosscheck.com, and that's. C-R-O-S-S-C-H-Q.com. 
Um, so it's, it's but a little funky with that, with that cue. Uh, and if anybody wants to hit me directly, it's fit at crosscheck, so F I T Z at crosscheck.com, uh, same spelling C R O S S C H Q.com. And again, thanks so much for having us. Yeah. Perfect. Mike. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time out of your day to be on the show and I look forward to keeping in touch with you and have a good rest of your day, man. Okay. Thanks. Talk to you soon. Right. Thank you. Okay. Bye. Right. Well, Kevin, that was a great show again. This yeah, I agree. Mike is a very interesting guy and he's been through some interesting experiences for sure. Uh, what did you get out of it, John? Oh, I, I think they're onto something really interesting and they're definitely addressing something that a lot of businesses want. I'm really interested in the, uh, in the, uh, in the locker idea, the, the data locker. Was that, that what he called it? Yeah, um, I think so. And, uh, and I was also interested in his uh, comments on how important it is to to find the right team and the total addressable market. Uh, when everybody asks about TAM, TAM means total addressable market. So uh, I thought that was a really interesting um, observation. Yeah, I also, I really liked his comments about finding signal. Um, I'd love to hear more from their data science side about you know the statistics behind that. But because uh, some of it's, I think it's art and science sometimes. It was my guess, anyways. Oh, I wonder if they're more have more science than art around that finding uh, signal and knowing what's working and what's not working and, and getting some metrics around what you're trying to do. I thought that was a really some really interesting comments. Oh, and how many times do you run into that as a as a company when you have customers asking for features that they say they need, and then you built it and um... And then you and look no at the usage and, and no one ever uses it. <laughs> and then you've got this thing to keep up for years and years to come. And you're maintaining this thing that nobody really uses. It's and, terrible. But everybody, you're under the impression that it's a must have. So it's also interesting that his VCs were interested in, in exploring that and then it wasn't used. So it's just interesting how people that have been there and done that and invested in companies and in Mike's cases, like even was building some of this stuff. They all thought that it was a viable thing and then they still pivoted away from it. Right. I, I love when people like him talk about that. And I wish I yeah. would have known some of that stuff earlier on in my career. And that's probably, that's a lesson for both entrepreneurs and investors. I think or people and people working within companies, not to be afraid of that, that, that totally. actually this is the expectation that it's not going to go according to plan. <laughs> so <laughs> the plan is going to be the guide, but it's not going to be exactly like that. And so, so, you know, don't be afraid of that, I guess. It's great. That was cool. And I think his, his, uh, his comment about optimism is really important yeah. along with, uh, along with the, uh, if you can fail, fail fast <laughs> as well. So yeah. uh, there's a, there's a fine balance there, but. Yeah, you know, Daniel Kahneman had a lot to say about optimism in, uh, in one of his books. So that's a, like a famous psychologist. Yeah, it's a, it's a valuable trait for sure. I'm going to have to look up this uh, Traversing the Traction Gap book. Sounds, yeah. sounds like a really interesting book to read. Thank you for tuning in to the Learner.co show. If you're looking to be a guest, try out our app, or want to get in touch, please visit Learner with two L's at www.learner.co. The music for the show is by Electric Mantra. Thanks for listening, and keep on learning.